Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. So today, we'll be talking about allergial syndrome, a rare but important cause of liver disease in children. We'll cover the basics of the condition, as well as the evolution of its diagnosis and treatment over the past 20 years, with one of the world's leading experts on the condition. That's right, Peter. Dr. Benita Kamath is a pediatric hepatologist and translational researcher at SickKids Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Kamath's research focuses on inherited biliary disorders with a primary interest in allergial syndrome. She also has been involved in studies looking at frailty in pediatric patients awaiting liver transplant. In addition to her clinical and research work, Dr. Kamath has had a large role in trainee mentorship, leading the NASPGAN Second Year Fellows Conference and recently taking on the role of Program Director at the Kids Fellowship Program. We are so fortunate to have her sit down with us for this episode. On to the show. Dr. Kamath, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's a pleasure to be here. We always try and start off by getting to know our guests a little bit better. I know you're from... Uh, from England. Uh, I think you're from London originally, and you've been living in North America for quite some time now, and specifically in Toronto for over a decade. But maybe we'll start by like, what are some of the things that you miss from England? Is there one thing in particular, a festival, a food, an experience? Oh, quite definitely. I miss the Indian food in England. Uh, it is simply the best Indian food in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> Perhaps even better than the Indian food in India, because there's uh, no risk of food poisoning. I have yet to find Indian food in North America that rivals the Indian food in London. And of course, not to mention my mother's cooking, which is also to be rivaled. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. So... Okay, so recently we've been asking our guests, how have you been spending your time? Is there like a favorite book, show, podcast, something like that that, you could, that you'd want to recommend? It doesn't have to be medical or anything serious. So it's interesting that you ask that. I, as all of us, we spend a lot of time reading academic literature, um, perhaps watching webinars. And I have to tell you that when I relax, I go to the completely opposite end of the spectrum. Yes. So I read a lot of fantasy novels. I read dystopian future novels. I read, and then I watch an enormous amount of crime to the extent that the, my children are often disturbed when they come <laughs> in and watch, listen to me watching something um, on Netflix. There's usually people being stabbed or murdered or kidnapped. Um, and I think that's my escapism. Yeah. Anything specific? That's Any like specific show? Um, I really enjoyed The Vikings recently, okay, which yeah. is a little bit of historical yeah. uh, thing. Um, I've been reading a great um, crime series recently, which is set in East Texas. It's about a Texas ranger. It's called Bluebird, Bluebird. And that was great. I also enjoyed The Witch Hunter. That's okay. what it's called on Netflix. Yeah. So that was fantasy. Uh, so that's it. Fantasy, crime, and science fiction. That pretty much sums up my free time. Very nice. Excellent. Very uh, good. Those, that sounds like a perfect escape. Maybe not the stabbing as much, but uh, <laughs> but the fantasy and sci-fi, I get that for sure. Yes. <laughs> but maybe I'll just, I'll start off. You know, you, you trained and worked at uh, CHOP in Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia before moving to Sick Kids, and, and I think at CHOP, that's where you, you developed your interest in cholestatic liver disease. Can you talk a little bit about those early influences, how you got interested in the area of allergial syndrome in particular? Certainly. So it was quite uh, 
fortuitous the way things happened. I actually first went to Philadelphia and didn't have a job and I joined CHOP as an observer. Um, and so those in the audience who will remember what well, some people will have been an observer in their past, you can't see any patients, can't really have independent patient contact. So for about six months, I was an observer at CHOP. And during that time, David Piccoli, to whom I really owe much of my career, he was trying to find things for me to do. And he sent me off to work with Nancy Spinner, who is a geneticist at CHOP. And she is the one who identified the disease gene, or both disease genes for allergy or syndrome. So he sends me off to her lab and says, go and do something fruitful. And during that six months, uh, Nancy Spinner and another geneticist in her group, Ian Krantz, basically gave me some manuscripts to write. And they handed me these folders and said, these are some papers. Can you write them up? I had never written before. Uh, an academic paper. And actually, I thought, oh, you know, I'm English. I'm in America. Of course I can write. <laughs> and I remember very clearly my first draft of my manuscript came back with more red on the page than black. And I was mortified. And essentially, they both taught me to write. And in the space of six months, I ended up writing four small case reports and case series about allergy or syndrome. And that's really where it all started. And from then on in, David Bacoli, Nancy Spinner, Ian Krantz, they became my research allergy or family, as it were. And we still have incredibly important and fruitful collaborations. Wow. So obviously, it, it helps to have people in a mentorship role who uh, sort of hand something to you and say, here's something that you can take ownership with, and this is something that you can do. Was there anything about the disease itself that kind of spoke to you or that really drove that interest as well? Yes, absolutely. I think it's the multi-system nature of Allergy-Hill syndrome that's always excited me, that every patient you get has a different pattern of disease. So you have to get pushed beyond your interest in hepatology, and you have to think about some cardiology, and you have to think about some neurology. And actually, if I backtrack even further than CHOP, when I was in England, I worked at the main cardiac hospital in London, which is called the Royal Brompton Hospital. And I had a patient with allergy syndrome and severe cardiac disease. They had just identified the disease gene. And I read the paper. I was a resident at this time. And I thought this was very interesting. And I decided to email the senior author of that manuscript. And that was Professor Nancy Spinner. So all the way back, even before I had decided to come to America, I had emailed this Professor Spinner. And in England, things are a little bit more hierarchical. So my email was incredibly formal. And lo and behold, she responded. She actually responded to my email. I couldn't believe this. In England, if you certainly that day, if you email a professor, they don't necessarily respond. Well, she responded and she signed the email Nancy, which of course <laughs> was extraordinary. And she was great. And she helped me and she helped me think about that patient. And it ended up that I did a presentation at the cardiac hospital as a resident about allergy or syndrome. So that was a couple of years before I even landed in Philadelphia. So I really think it was destiny. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. And it all started, yeah. yes, it all started <laughs> in a cardiac intensive care unit and a single email to Nancy Spinner. So I mean, wow. I don't believe that she remembered that email a couple of years later, but um, her openness to me uh, to engage about a patient that I thought was interesting was extraordinary. And I, I think that's something that our community does very well today. I think if a resident or an intern or a medical student can email me today, um, and I hope that I would respond, perhaps not quite in a day or so, but I would respond. <laughs> and I think most of the people in our field would do the same. For sure. Oh, that's great that you had that kind of uh, early, early response, early support. No wonder you bought in. Many of our listeners are not pediatric gastroenterologists or hepatologists. They may be trainees like students or residents and sometimes general pediatricians. 
So for those who are not super familiar with allergy syndrome, how would you describe it? What is allergy syndrome? So allergy syndrome is an autosomal dominant multi-system disorder characterized by disease in multiple organ systems. So typically we see cholestatic liver disease with cardiac defects, facial features, skeletal manifestations, eye findings, and then relatively more recently discovered, we also now know that there's renal involvement and vascular defects. So potentially disease in seven different organ systems. But the really interesting thing about allergy syndrome is that it's highly variable. So there's inter and intrafamilial variability. So we know that there are two disease genes. The vast majority of patients have a mutation in JAGAD1. A handful have a mutation in another disease, a gene called NOTCH2. But even individuals in the same family with the same JAGAD1 mutation can have extraordinarily different patterns um, of disease uh, manifestation. So I think that's really exciting. Uh, what I'm really saying in a more technical way is that there are no genotype-phenotype correlations. So we can understand the genetics, we can find out what type of mu mutation a patient has relatively easily, but we can make almost no predictions about what, what that patient's phenotype is, what that patient's natural history will be based on that genetic mutation. And, and it's interesting times, and I, and I think at the moment, we, what we're really trying to think about, and the group at CHOP are still very active in this area, is to look for genetic modifiers, really to think, are there second variants that a patient may have that then modifies their pattern of disease? So that in the future, perhaps we won't just talk about a patient having a JAG1 mutation. We might say, oh, that patient has a JAG1 notch 3 variant, and that explains their vascular phenotype. Or this patient has a notch 2 thrombospondin variant, and that might describe their hepatic phenotype. So I think as much of the scientific world is going, we're going to be moving hopefully towards better molecular characterizations of these patients so that we can better explain patients' disease. Because really, Allergy syndrome was described by a hepatologist, Daniel Allergiel, French hepatologist, obviously brilliant. And that's why this disease has often fallen into the laps of hepatologists and gastroenterologists to manage. But we know that there are multiple patients that have almost no or minimal hepatic manifestations. So, for instance, does a patient with a vasculopathy such as moya-moya and facial features and almost no overt liver disease, does that patient have allergial syndrome? And I'm not sure that they do because allergial described a phenotype that rested on the presence of liver disease with associated anomalies. So probably a patient that has moya-moya and facial features, perhaps they need a different name or a different label, which better explains uh, their disease. Pulling back to sort of the cholestatic liver disease kids, the kids that maybe fit the, the classical phenotype for allergial syndrome, uh, obviously the, the list of causes for cholestasis in infants is, is very long, and allergial syndrome is obviously on that list. But how, how do you position allergial syndrome within the workup for cholestatic infants? So, you know, when we think of that big differential and we're sort of trying to be pragmatic about when to start looking for certain causes, where do you fit allergial in? We know that it's probably the most common inherited cause of cholestasis. And that just helps you in terms of characterizing your laundry list. I think the other way that many of us approach neonatal cholestasis is to think about the time-sensitive diagnoses. Allergial syndrome per se is not a time-sensitive diagnosis when you're working up uh, the various diagnostic causes because in of itself there isn't a particular therapy. However, it is the most important differential diagnosis of high GGT cholestasis. And therefore, 
it is the most important diagnosis that you need to distinguish from biliary atresia. And that's really where the time sensitivity comes in, not because you're trying to make a diagnosis of allergial syndrome, but you're trying to differentiate between biliary atresia, which we know is time sensitive, and allergial syndrome. So the way that I think about it is that whenever you see an infant with high GGT cholestasis, and particularly in a child that has any type of additional anomaly, you have to really be thinking of allergial syndrome. I also think for students, it's a typical, very classic boards question, and I had this on my boards in the UK. I was asked to see a child, this is in an exam setting, where we did live patient exams, a jaundiced child, and I was asked to place my stethoscope in the axilla. That's the only place I was allowed to listen. And that was a yellow child with a murmur that radiates out to the axilla. And that is liver disease with a murmur consistent with peripheral pulmonary stenosis. And that's allergial syndrome until proven otherwise. So I think to be succinct, I would say that a child with high GGT cholestasis and any type of additional anomaly, particularly cardiac, you have to have allergial syndrome extremely high on your list. And again, thinking of that trainee, thinking of that learner who's trying to figure this stuff out, having allergial syndrome in their mind, what would you include in that workup for a child that you suspect might have allergial syndrome because of something in addition to the cholestasis? Certainly. So in addition to the standard labs that we that we would talk about, then you would think about doing the additional testing to look for the specific anomalies. So an eye exam, but that has to be done by a slit lamp examination for posterior embryotoxin, a spinal x-ray to look for the classic skeletal manifestations, which would be butterfly vertebra. Of course, if a child has, has a murmur, you're going to ask for an echo. It's very important when you request an echocardiogram and you are thinking about allergial syndrome to specifically mention that you are thinking about allergial syndrome and to look for peripheral pulmonary stenosis, because otherwise a standard echo can just focus on intracardiac defects. And you want to make sure that they're really going to examine the peripheral pulmonary tree. Um, an abdominal ultrasound, of course, sort of standard in our hepatologic workup. But I think specifically also you might be looking for renal anomalies, such as echogenicity of the kidneys or, or even a horseshoe kidney, something as obvious as that. I think the issue of a liver biopsy is very interesting when you're thinking about allergial syndrome. It is often done when you're trying to distinguish between allergial syndrome and biliary atresia. However, if I just had a standalone case of a child where I'm trying to make a diagnosis um, of allergial syndrome, the classic histopathologic finding we know from the earlier descriptions is bile duct paucity, uh, so insufficient bile duct. But now I don't really think that that is mandatory to make a diagnosis of allergial syndrome. So if you were evaluating an older child in whom you'd already excluded biliary atresia, you don't necessarily need to document bile duct paucity on liver biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. If you have high GGT cholestasis and you have disease in three of the classic organ systems that I've described, that is sufficient to make a clinical diagnosis. And now, of course, we can make a molecular diagnosis. And once you have a genetic diagnosis, again, it's not mandatory to do a liver biopsy. And I think that's important for the listeners to appreciate um, unless you have a clinical indication, unless it's going to change your management for some reason. And so primarily really to exclude other causes of cholestasis. Exactly. It, it's just not necessary. And I always think in general, as a hepatologist, when you're doing a liver biopsy, you have to ask yourself the question, how does this change my management? Right. Or does this enable me to make a diagnosis that I couldn't make otherwise? And now in the era of genetic diagnosis, that is less important for allergial syndrome. And I will just add Part of the reason why I harp on this a little bit is that there is a known 
intrinsic bleeding risk in Allergill syndrome, which goes beyond hypersplenism, thrombocytopenia, and it goes beyond coagulopathy. So that there are descriptions in the literature of children having uncontrolled bleeding and even catastrophic outcomes after invasive testing in allergial syndrome. So not to frighten people if a liver biopsy is necessary, liver biopsy is necessary, but don't do it just to make a diagnosis because you could have an adverse event on your hands that's unnecessary. And so you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you came to CHOP initially, um, early on you worked with the team that identified the JAG1 gene. How has knowing the gene that causes it, how has that changed the care and the management, the diagnosis of these patients? So it has certainly helped from a diagnostic standpoint. We can, uh, because it's autosomal dominant, which I think also the listeners should be aware of, it's in stark contrast to the majority of the inherited diseases that we deal with in our field. This is autosomal dominant. Uh, so you can make a very clean diagnosis um, with uh, inalgesia syndrome, looking for a mutation, as I said, predominantly in jagged one and in a handful of cases in notch two. So I think it's helped to make a diagnosis. Um, it's helped us to uncover milder forms of allergy or syndrome that may not have come to clinical attention, and thereby it's helped our understanding of the condition, the extreme variability. However, because we don't have genotype-phenotype associations and we can't make predictions or find correlations with phenotype or natural history, um, it's hard to say that understanding the genetics has changed our day-to-day -day care. Um, beyond the diagnostic element. It, it's, it's difficult. I would love to be able to say to a family, this is the mutation your child has. It's a protein truncating mutation. I can predict that your child will or will not need a transplant, uh, liver transplant. I can predict that your child will or will not have this uh, renal anomaly. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. So I have to honestly admit that the genetics has not fully impacted our management abilities for patients. Maybe just to follow up on that, like understanding the, the genetic transmission. So we've got autosomal dominant uh, inheritance pattern, but completely variable phenotypic presentation. So how does genetic counseling fit in either for the patients themselves, so as they get older, or for the families of a child with allergial or, you know, who may uh, carry the genetic mutation themselves? So what's the approach to that? It's interesting. Of course, we do rely on partnership with genetic counselors in this area who are more experts, though I have to admit, with it being autosomal dominant, we do do some of the counseling ourselves as hepatologists because 40% of the time when you're seeing a patient with allergy or syndrome, one of the parents is affected. I find this extraordinary. 40% of the time, one of those parents that walks into your clinic with that child carries the mutation and quite often they are unaware until they come into the room. Quite often we make a diagnosis based on just the facial features of a parent. Um, and often that's news to a family. So you can imagine genetic counseling becomes very different when there's a parent in the room who's affected, likely mildly affected. Um, I've had a physician parent who had the mutation. Um, and when his wife asked me, she said, Dr. Kamath, is my child going to be normal? Very classic question from parent. And I said, ma'am, he's going to be about as normal as his father. <laughs> Which was, of course, a light, a light moment, a light moment for the family. Uh, but I think, I think that it changes the way you counsel when there's a when there is a person in the room with the program themselves. So I think you have to handle that very delicately. But I think it also can give hope because, again, 
you have in a family evidence of a milder phenotype, perhaps a moderate phenotype or even a severe phenotype. So it, it's not a stretch for families to understand that there can be a very mild uh, phenotype associated with a mutation. But I think the, the hard bit for families is planning future pregnancies. And that's where we very definitely have to get our genetic colleagues um, to help us because I think there's tremendous sensitivity about how one approaches a future pregnancy or an existing pregnancy um, and to have discussions um, around termination and other options. I'm not sure that we as gastroenterologists, hepatologists are really quite equipped for the, the full breadth of understanding uh, those issues. One thing I will add that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is possible with allergial syndrome and that has been an avenue that I am aware that some families have taken. So there's lots that can be done, but I think that's a good time. If somebody's fam if you're trying to explain the existing phenotype in a family, I think we, we can do that. I think if you're talking about planning future pregnancies, it's a good time to get the counselors involved. Again, because of the lack of genotype-phenotype um, correlations. So expanding on that a little bit, so for a syndrome that's so complex that affects so many different s systems, obviously it's hard for the hepatologist to take care of everything. And what are some of the challenges that you face in caring for children with allergy syndrome? And can you talk about kind of the other team members you might need to really provide their, uh, their care? Certainly. I think, first of all, from the liver clinic standpoint, just itself, I couldn't manage any of these patients without my dietitian. I think dietitians are extraordinarily important in the management of any cholestatic patient. And uh, with allergy syndrome, sometimes when there's a complex interplay between cholestasis impacting growth and then perhaps a cardiac defect impacting growth, perhaps even renal contributions, I think the role of a dietitian is paramount. So that's just within my, my own team, not to mention, of course, my nurse who keeps me honest and on time. But just specifically for these patients, I think dietitians are incredibly important. And then, of course, it depends on the disease manifestations that the particular patient has. So often with in infants, cardiology is incredibly important, particularly those children that have a severe intracardiac defect. And so talking to the cardiologist, having a close relationship and understanding what often is the appropriate timing of interventions. We have handled many patients where they have a severe cardiac defect and have severe cholestasis. So trying to understand that if this patient needs to get to liver transplant, what needs to be done to get that heart in a good enough condition to withstand a transplant? And that just requires a constant interplay between cardiology, cardiac intensivists, liver transplant, and hepatology. That's one important area. And I think other interesting collaborations that I've had through taking care of patients with allergy syndrome have been with nephrology. Uh, um, a handful of patients do have severe renal disease. And then also neurology, which I think has been relatively recent as a recognition of how important vasculopathy is in uh, allergy syndrome, and particularly with the risk of stroke and cerebrovascular anomalies. So one of the things that I've been particularly interested in is advocating for the use of screening for vascular anomalies using MRI, MRA of the head. I will admit that this is still a controversial area, but since I have the mic, I will give you my view, which is that I think that we should look for these vascular anomalies in children with allergial syndrome. And even though we don't have a great allergial specific plan for managing neurovascular anomalies, I think knowledge is important. 
And one thing that I would add is that the families want to know. The allergy syndrome families are tremendously well-educated, well-informed. Um, and I work closely with the main advocacy group for allergy syndrome, which is the allergy syndrome alliance. I interact a lot with the families and they feel very strongly that they want to know about vascular anomalies. They want to help us learn and they understand the need for screening. So my current recommendation is that when a child reaches an age that they no longer need a general anesthetic for an MR, so that's roughly around the age of eight, I would do a baseline MRI, MRA of the head. And then I would also recommend an MRI, MRA of the head prior to any major surgical procedure, such as liver transplant. And that's the practice at our center, though I do admit that that is not universally adopted yet, but I will continue to preach it as best I can. One of the other big problems that I've certainly seen a few patients with allergial syndrome who had uh, terrific problems with pruritus. It can be a huge issue for children with allergial syndrome that has a, a major impact on quality of life. So what are the treatment options for that problem? And, and do you have like a stepwise approach that you would follow? Absolutely. Um, most of our patients who are cholestatic and have pruritus will be on ursodeoxycholic acid. And typically the Next medicine to add or to offer would be an antihistamine such as um, hydroxyzine. And that's sort of what I call the initial step. Thereafter, usually we would go on to offering cholestyramine or rifampicin. Uh, cholestyramine is not very palatable and often requires a reasonable volume of liquid. So that's often difficult to administer unless a patient happens to have a G-tube inside. So typically, I would go to rifampicin next. And I should add that these are additive, we're not replacing. So I, a patient in my clinic would typically be on ursodeoxycholic acid, an antihistamine, and rifampicin. If a patient still has severe pruritus, as many do at that point, we then might offer a medication such as naltrexone, which can certainly have an additive effect. There is um, recent literature about using sertraline as an additional option, but by this point, you're really getting down to the wire, as it were. And if a patient is still experiencing pruritus, things are, are getting tough. So at this point, really, you would have a more limited number of options. One is to offer surgical biliary diversion, which is really a surgical method to divert bile, typically to the anterior abdominal wall into a stoma. Uh, there are some ways of doing an internal diversion as well, which wouldn't require a stoma, but it is clearly a surgical approach. And then in some cases, if pruritus and the cholestasis are extremely severe, to, have to actually have to consider liver transplantation. But I would like to mention at this point that there, that there is a new class of medications that are currently in clinical trials that are very exciting, which are intestinal bile acid transport inhibitors or IBAT inhibitors. This is an exciting class of drugs which basically block bile acid uptake at the enterocyte level. So essentially affecting a chemical diversion because you're blocking enteropathic circulation of bile acids. And there have been two clinical trials that have been completed, one in North America, one in Europe, specifically looking at this class of drugs for allergy or syndrome to address the pruritus. And there are some really promising data. I'm hoping for approval for these drugs from regulatory bodies uh, at some point next year, I think. And I think this will be an additional tool in our armamentarium to approach pruritus. So I would place this drug in the stepwise approach, probably after rifampicin. And it could certainly avoid surgical diversion or even transplant for some patients. So exciting and not far off. That's exciting. And you mentioned, you know, so some of these children will uh, go on to require liver transplantation. And I know one of your research and maybe clinical interests is 
and how frailty relates to children who are awaiting transplant. So can you explain to us like what is what do you mean by frailty and and why is it important in this group of children? Yes. So frailty is a fascinating disorder. And I'm going to just take an aside and explain to you how I fell into studying yeah. frailty. I was at the ASLD liver meeting in Boston and I was listening to an adult hepatologist talk about frailty in elderly patients with liver disease. And as he described it, and I will define it for you in a minute, as, as he described it, I turned to the person next to me, who happened to be Dr. John Bukovalis, people will know him, esteemed pediatric transplant hepatologist. And I said to him, this makes sense for children. And Dr. Bukovalis, listeners who know him, he immediately texted the speaker whilst he was at the podium. <laughs> so that as nice. that, uh, who, he happens to be a surgeon, got off the podium, he would have looked at his phone and said, Sure, pediatrics. <laughs> and we started a collaboration, and that's where it moved forward. So <laughs> oh, it was just great. a fortuitous my presence at an abstract session and put me sitting next to Dr. Bukovalis. So frailty is an area of research I fell into from there and have done all the work on frailty and its biologic correlate sarcopenia uh, with my colleague and friend, Dr. Vicky Ng um, in Toronto. And it's a biologic syndrome or a phenotype of cumulative declines across multiple physiologic systems causing vulnerability to adverse outcomes. It was first described in the elderly, but I think when you hear that description or as a pediatrician hears it, it so clearly applies to children with chronic disease. And as pediatricians, I think we believe that we can eyeball children and say, oh, that child's frail or that child's not frail. But what having a frailty scale or a frailty measure does is give us an objective method to measure those parameters of ill health that we otherwise eyeball. So these are the parameters that go beyond what you can capture in lab. And so what uh, the classic freed frailty criteria do is they have measures for weakness, slowness, shrinkage, which is weight loss, exhaustion, and diminished physical activity. And that was the original frailty scale. It has now been refined by multiple investigators, particularly in the liver disease, um, adult liver disease area, into sort of functional measures of ill health. And particularly in the liver disease area, where so many of our patients are so young, under the age of two, where it's not necessarily be possible to do a six-minute walk distance or to measure hand grip strength uh, in a two-year-old, it's really important to also think about the biologic correlate of frailty, which is sarcopenia, which is muscle mass. And so that's another area that Dr. Ng and myself have been actively looking at is ways to measure or capture muscle mass in young children with liver disease. And it really looks like there's some very exciting data there that we can certainly identify sarcopenia and now potentially even look at adverse outcomes. I would love to see these concepts of frailty and sarcopenia be more widely applied in our field. I think there's no reason to suspect that patients with inflammatory bowel disease don't have frailty. And so I hope that people in our field will sort of jump on this bandwagon and uh, take it further. Lots of reasons to stay tuned to this space and uh, keep keep watching uh, PubMed for, for your name. But maybe to change gears a bit, I know that you've been really involved uh, over the bulk of the last decade anyway in, in trainee mentorship, um, particularly at the level of NASPGAN with the Fellows Conferences. And I know you've just recently taken on the role of Program Director. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, why has this been an important part of your career? Well, mentorship is incredibly important to me, probably because I feel it's the one area of what I do that I think I can potentially actually make a difference. 
if I'm quite honest, I love my research, but I honestly don't think that I'm going to change the world with my research, or perhaps I'm going to impact a small group of people. But in my own career, I remember several key conversations in my past that changed my own trajectory and changed my decision making and really helped me. So I treat every conversation with a trainee, be it an Aspergan conference, be it via email or a medical student with the same care and attention that I think people afforded me. And perhaps if I have a legacy when I retire, I actually think that it will potentially be the people that I help. That's great. And nothing makes me happier than to turn up at Nasbegan or to turn up at the ASLD meeting and have somebody come up to me and say, Benita, I met you at the Nasbegan conference. Can I ask you a question? Or hi, do you remember me? And that is the best feeling. I'll just tack on a personal note. I, I specifically remember, I think it was our second year fellows conference that uh, you did a session on CV with Dr. Michael Narkowitz. And I just remember being blown away at such a, it, it, on some level, it's such a small thing, but but it, it has a big impact. I, I remember being blown away that, that you guys both just threw out copies of your CVs and let us sort of walk through what your CVs were like. What style did you choose? Why you chose to enter things in certain ways and really um, the, the fact that you were so open and, and sharing of your own personal history to mentor others uh, makes a big impact. So uh, so I certainly appreciated that, besides the fact that you guys made it fun, too. Oh, I'm glad you have good memories of that. It, that was fun. Did you destroy my CV, by the way? I hope you did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. So, okay. So one question that we've been asking everybody, what do you think was the best advice that you got from a mentor or someone who is more senior, you know, and also... You know, what kind of advice do you have for trainees and junior faculty who are listening to this podcast? Uh, the first piece is very easy and it's not, it was really directive advice. I was at King College in London, uh, Europe's largest transplant center, really where I inspired my love of hepatology. And Dr. Anil Dawan, who's the head there, he said to me, you should go to America. And that was <laughs> oh, wow. the one piece of advice he gave me. He said, you, I don't even think he used my name. He said, you should go to America. You would do well there. So that was, that's, that's an aside. I think the, seriously, the best advice I have for trainees and junior faculty that I received is about being thematic in your career and in your academic life and then sticking to your themes. So anybody who knows me knows that in my office, I have a whiteboard and on the whiteboard, I have boxes or buckets. I've written up what my themes are. So who is Benita? And that's what the themes are. And under each one, of course, I have the tasks that I have to do. And when you start out and you're young, you can really only have one or two themes. And they don't have to be just academic. My themes now would be allergy or syndrome clinical, allergy or syndrome lab, that was more, frailty, and then mentorship. You know, one of my themes is mentorship. So those are my four themes. They're up there on my whiteboard. And whenever somebody asks me to do something new, I literally will physically look at my board and I will say, okay, does this ask fit into one of my four themes. And if it does, I do it. And if I don't, I find a graceful way to say no or to help them find an alternative. And this is key for when you come up for promotion, but it's also just key for your own satisfaction. People have to say, Peter Liu is synonymous with X, Y, Z, and Jason is synonymous with this. And I, Benita is synonymous with X, Y, and Z, and you want to hold on to that. And I've really looked at the leaders in our field, and I've realized that that's what they've done. Yeah, that is... I mean, as someone who has only been attending for a few years, I feel like that is amazing advice. I think one of the biggest struggles for me has been, you know, once you finish your fellowship, I feel like your life is a little bit less defined. 
and you're trying mm -hmm. to figure out like, what am I going to do? You know, what's my, what's the balance going to be? I think there's on one hand, you want to say yes to everything. And then you realize you're like, you know, killing yourself trying to like keep up with everything. I think that's awesome. Like a great way to keep things organized and keep yourself, you know, more effective and trying to become who you want to be. From a selfish point of view, I was, will say that I'm glad that Bow Sounds fit into one of your four themes. Secretly, I've always wanted Sanjay Gupta's job. So don't, it's not that this isn't, <laughs> this isn't something that I don't want. This is something that I, oh my goodness, that would have been my alternate career anytime to oh, do okay. media. So, so, yeah. So when you take over for Sanjay and CNN, uh, just remember the little people and, you know, give us a shout out every once in a while and say, like, you know, if it, wa if it wasn't for Bow Sounds, I right. wouldn't be here yes. now. But again, Dr. Kamath, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. I think our listeners will really uh, appreciate the, the great learning about Alajil, but also about the important career advice you had for them. Thank you both. It was an absolute pleasure and really quite an honor. All right. Well, thanks right, so thanks. much, guys. We're so lucky to have uh, Dr. Kamath join us for this month's episode. I think that was such a great conversation. I learned some things about allergial syndrome that maybe I had learned in fellowship and forgotten. So I, I think I learned a lot. But for me, the one takeaway that really struck home was the, the message about having your themes, your personal themes and the, your areas of concentration and evaluating new opportunities, especially for new, tr new faculty that are inundated with new asks and requests and, and opportunities to really hold that up against your uh, picture of yourself or your themes and, and judge the opportunity based on that. I thought that was such an important lesson yeah and something like practical that all of us can apply i thought um one thing i guess really that we've kind of heard from a number of different people we've talked to is uh you know so you talk to this person who has become an expert on this topic but a lot of times in the very beginning it's not like they heard about the topic and decided like that's what i want my life to be about a lot of it's based on mentors and opportunities and you know, so she came to CHOP and Dr. Piccoli said, why don't you work on this? And then that has led to uh, a career improving the lives of these children with this disorder. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. For, so for someone who's younger, it's you just got to be open to the opportunities that you get. And it's not about you find one thing and you only do that one thing. It's about like listening to people around you and thinking about what people recommend, I guess, and their advice. Yeah, no, great, great career advice for sure. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspigan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.